Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Hey, I want to let you know about something I noticed on one of the tables over there where the lovely Nancy Davis is sitting. And it's a little book that uh, by Rick Warren called What on Earth Am I Here For? Some of you are familiar with this. It's a condensation of his uh, best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. And uh, I think this is a great little booklet, and it has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, so we have a supply over there of these over there. They're free. You can pick one up. And uh, let me just read the, the very first paragraph of this, which is titled, uh, the first chapter is, It All Starts With God. And uh, the first line is offensive to all of us. He says, it's not about you. <laughs> it's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And uh, that's so true, and uh, I hope that message comes through today. But if you'd like to pick up one of these little books, uh, I would encourage you to do that. For those of you who are new among us this morning, we are in a series through the New Testament book of Philippians, which is a letter from a guy named Paul to a church in the city of Philippi, hence Philippians. And uh, our series is entitled Embrace Joy. We're in Philippians chapter 2 this morning, beginning at verse 19. If you have a Bible with you, I hope you do. Uh, or if you have a Bible app on your phone and can log on to that, I would encourage you to do that. Philippians 2, beginning at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I that shortly I myself will come also. In this brief little paragraph, Paul talks about plans. He talks about a person. And in doing that, he, he poses a contemporary challenge to our purposes in life and our purposes here at Life Point Church, and it's powerful. So would you bow again with me, and let's pray that God will guide our reflections on his word and our responses to it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being here today. Thank you for the warmth of the sun. Thank you for the warmth of fellowship among believers. Thank you that you've made us a church, that you've called us to this place, and Lord, we haven't even begun to understand all of your reasons for calling us here to 1416 26th Avenue Northeast. We're still surprised a year later. And uh, we are wanting, Lord, to discern your purposes for us as a church in this place. But Lord, most of what you desire for us as a church has already been revealed in your word. And so would you, this morning, by your Holy Spirit, open it to us that we would understand just this little section and apply it obediently and thoughtfully in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look first at what Paul has to say about his plans, his plans. 
Uh, This short passage is bookended by two similar sounding statements. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And then verse 24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Pretty straightforward, not hard to understand. A day is coming, first of all, when the Philippian church could expect that Timothy would arrive among them. Paul hoped that day would be soon, with the one caveat that the day of Timothy's departure for Philippi was contingent on a clarified view of his own circumstances. Verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. That is, whether he would be released from prison or would be subject to continued imprisonment, or even worse, execution. Notice Paul's purpose in sending Timothy back to Philippi in the latter part of verse 19. Steve uh, touched on this earlier. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. See, Paul expected that when Timothy arrived uh, carrying this letter to the Philippians, that they would obey his instructions, uh, bring correction to the disunity that was growing like a cancer in their church. So that when Timothy returned from his journey to Philippi, he would bring back news that corrections had been made, that Euodia and Syntyche, who we'll meet in chapter 4, had reconciled, that all of them were of one heart and mind, that they were looking not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of each other as well. And secondly, Paul's informing the Philippians that he's trusting in the Lord, that shortly he himself would be coming to them also. Paul apparently had some basis for his expectation that he would be released from his imprisonment and would see the Philippians again. It's interesting, historians seem to be split in their conclusions about whether he was released or not. Those who hold the opinion that he was, in fact, released from this particular imprisonment also believe that he traveled and evangelized for several more years before his final imprisonment and his ultimate death by execution. There's a footnote here that uh, before we go any further, I want to just pause and take a look at. It's something that may at first seem like nothing more than a footnote, but it's important, and I don't want to let the moment pass without calling it to your attention. Notice verses 19 and 24 again. It's that repeated phrase, in the Lord. Paul hopes in the Lord to send Timothy, and he trusts in the Lord to come to them soon himself. And what I'd like you to think about with me for just a moment is why it is that Paul seems so careful to couch his hopes with the phrase, in the Lord. Now, we could easily justify passing this by because, after all, we might think, well, that's just Bible talk, right? That's how these guys in the Bible said things. They were kind of weird. There's, there's, there's really nothing here to, to see that's of value to us. It amounts to nothing more than extra ink on the page. So let's just move on. But I think there's an important principle here for Christian living that we should at least acknowledge before we move on. You know, Paul lived with the constant consciousness of the sovereign authority of God over his life, at work in his life in general, and in his personal circumstances in particular. In the book of James, there's a 
there's a short passage that offers essential instruction for the ways that, that each of us are called to frame our personal plans, which I think will help us to understand what Paul is wanting to convey. James 4, verses 13 to 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You know, you, you could insert whatever you wanted to into verse 13. James describes going on a business trip, business trip out of town, but you could just as well insert vacation plans, plans for making a purchase of some kind, plans for your college education, plans for your retirement. Just fill in the blank, because the issue is not how a blank is filled. The issue is your attitude about the future and who you acknowledge as being in control who you regard as having the final say about your plans and about your future. Both Paul and James warn us against the arrogance of asserting our own will, our own plans for our lives, without acknowledgement of the sovereign authority and will of God. So by saying, I hope in the Lord, Paul's saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I know that I can entrust the moments and the days and the plans and the purposes of my life to his sovereign leadership every step of the way. And that's why you, you and I, as, as, uh, as we approach our hopes and plans for the future, we can, in fact, we must say, I hope to do this or that, if the Lord wills that I do it. And if it's not his will, well, I may be personally disappointed at times, but that's okay, too, because I'm going to keep on affirming his love for me, keep on trusting in his sovereign wisdom, and keep on pursuing his will for my life. And see, that was just a mini-sermon in the middle of the actual one, and you're welcome. See, in between these two bookends is Paul's description of Timothy, and it's a glowing one. Look again at verses 20 to 22. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Now Paul makes two statements about Timothy there that, that set him apart as unique. Again, first in verse 20, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy. And the word he uses here is an interesting one. The word is isosukos. A literal translation would be isos or equal, and sukos or soul, equal soul. Equal soul. And it conveys the thoughts of, of being of one mind, of owning a shared worldview, a shared set of values and convictions, whether moral or spiritual. And as evidence of that, Paul says that Timothy will be genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare. That he's sending to them someone 
who will care for them in a manner and with an intensity that equals Paul's own care and concern for them, and that Timothy stands out in this. He excels all of his peers in seeking the interests of Christ above his own. And like Paul, who was more concerned for the advancement of the gospel than that he was in prison, or that others were making his hardship more difficult, and like Jesus Christ, who put obedience ahead of grasping the privileges available to him as God, Timothy subordinated his own interests to the interests of Jesus Christ. And Timothy stands as an example to us of the principle that Paul is attempting in this letter to convey to the Philippians that at the heart of what it means to live a life that is truly Christian, that reflects the humble, sacrificial, self-emptying mindset of the Lord Jesus as he has just described it in verses 5 to 10, is to look not only to your own interests, but also as a matter of higher value and higher priority to the interests of others. Paul's second statement about Timothy is in verse 22. You know his proven worth. See, Timothy, over time, proved his worth to Paul and to anyone else who had been paying attention to his life and ministry. Paul was paying attention, and as evidence of Timothy's proven worth, Paul says of Timothy, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. The Bible gives us a few biographical bits of data about Timothy. Timothy was a native of the Roman province of Galatia. We don't know his father's name. Connecting the dots in Acts 16, we can safely conclude that Timothy was raised as a Greek by a Greek father and not as a Jew, and that his father was not a believer in Christ. We're not told how his conversion took place. What we're told is that his mother Eunice, who was a Jewish woman, was a believer in Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Christ. His grandmother Lois was also a believer. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul draws a line directly from the faith of Timothy's grandmother to the faith of his mother and then to Timothy's personal faith. So it seems likely that he was led to personal faith in Christ by his mother and or his grandmother. Then when Paul, on his second missionary journey, met Timothy, he was probably just a teenager. But he had already established a positive reputation among the Christian leaders in the region where he had grown up. Think about that. And from that time on, Paul brought Timothy under his wing, and they became very, very close. Paul became Timothy's spiritual father. With Paul, Timothy traveled to places he had never dreamt of going and experienced things he never in his life expected to experience. Timothy traveled all across Asia with Paul, strengthening the churches. He was with him in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Corinth, 
in Ephesus. He witnessed evangelism, conversions, baptisms, saw churches strengthened, witnessed political and spiritual opposition to the gospel, violent riots, demonic attacks, and more. Just think of all that Timothy must have seen and experienced and learned just by being with Paul in these places and circumstances about the power of the gospel to transform lives and entire cities, about the power of Christ over Satan and demons, about counting the cost of following Jesus and serving in his name. And now Timothy was again with Paul, assisting and supporting him during his imprisonment in Rome. In bringing Timothy along with him, and the others in Paul's missionary team. He was following a principle modeled by Jesus in the selection and development of the 12 men who formed his inner circle of disciples. Mark chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So here's the principle. Withness, W-I-T-H, withness, was the prerequisite to witness. Withness was the prerequisite to witness and to spiritual authority. The twelve were chosen first to be with Jesus for an extended period before they were sent out to preach, to have authority to cast out demons. There were things that the disciples needed to observe, to learn, to ponder, to become persuaded of before he would commission them in turn to preach the gospel to every creature, to make disciples of all the nations. In the same way, Paul brought Timothy with him on these missionary journeys, gave him countless opportunities for observation, for reflection, for learning. Finally, he gave him the opportunity to begin to participate in hands-on ministry himself. Timothy participated with Paul in the writing of no fewer than five of his letters, Romans, First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. Whenever Paul needed information from a church or wanted to send instruction or encouragement, or rebuke or correction and couldn't go himself, it was Timothy whom he sent. Let me show you one last thing about Timothy. When we examine the terms that Paul used to refer to Timothy, it gives insight to the progression, not only of their relationship, but also the progression of Timothy's increasing Maturity. Notice this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke of Timothy as my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In his letters to Timothy, Paul addressed him as my true child in the faith and my beloved child. But writing to the church in Rome, the tone changes. No longer does he call Timothy a child, but now he calls him my fellow worker. In his second letter to the Corinthian believers, in his letter to the Colossian believers, and to Philemon, 
Paul calls Timothy our brother. And then writing to the church in Thessalonica, he calls Timothy our brother and God's co-worker. Eventually, Timothy became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And in time, he himself also, like Paul, became a prisoner for the sake of the gospel. Timothy proved to be an exceptional ally for Paul and an exceptional leader in the advancement of the, of the gospel and the development of the early church. His journey began in childhood with a grandmother and a mother who introduced him to the gospel and led him to personal faith in Christ and was radically transformed in adolescence because of life-changing relationships with godly men and women who invested in him, who encouraged him, who called out his giftedness, who gave him gave shape to what he would become and what he would accomplish in his adulthood for the kingdom of God. So I want to ask you a question this morning that this study has raised for me this week. I can't tell you how important I think it really is as a former youth pastor, now as a pastor, a dad, soon to be a grandfather. It's important that we as a church take this question seriously, that we take it to heart, that we pray and ask God to give us his answers, and then that we take tangible action in response. Here's the question. How will we at LifePoint Church be faithful to raise up young men and women like Timothy. Let me repeat that. How will we at LifePoint Church be faithful to raise up young men and women like Timothy? We discussed this question briefly in our pastoral staff meeting this week, and Pastor Evan answered, well, not by accident. Not by accident, only by intentionality. So let me ask you a second question, church. Are we content in this world, turned upside down and inside out? Have you watched the news lately? Are we content to leave the spiritual development of our children and teens to chance? Or will we act intentionally to ensure that LifePoint Church is a place where our children are raised up in such a way that they become adults who are established in their faith and who are equipped to impact their world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Allow me to point out what I believe are four non-negotiable imperatives for us as a church. Each of these taken from the life of Timothy that we need to take seriously here in the 21st century if we're going to act intentionally and faithfully in this all-important matter. The 
first one is this, that, that we are going to have to equip parents to raise their children in the Lord. Christian parents, your first priority in raising your children is not to make sure that they have a diversity of experiences in childhood, that they get all the lessons they can possibly get, that they get into the best schools, that they get a college education, or that they marry well and choose a great career. All of those may be important, but they're secondary to your first and highest priority, which is to lead them to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, your sincere faith, that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And then you must give yourself, parents, to seeing that they are nurtured in their faith to real maturity. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, Fathers, and it's always fathers first. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't put them down. Bring them up. And it's going to involve both discipline and instruction, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's not easy. It's hard. It's supposed to be. So put a helmet on and get going. Timothy didn't have a godly father in his home. His father wasn't a believer. It's like that in many Christian homes today. In some homes, it's the other way around. Dad is a believer, mom is not. But, but that didn't stop Lois and Eunice from passing their faith from generation to generation and leading Timothy as a young man into a growing personal faith in Christ that was his very own. Many of you as parents didn't grow up in a Christian home. You may not know how to be Christian parents. You may not know what it's supposed to look like. Can't tell you how many young dads in particular I've had come to me and say, I don't, I don't, even, I don't have a clue where I'm supposed to start here. One of our commitments as pastors and elders is to intentionally equip you as parents, biblically and practically, to be the primary spiritual leaders in your homes and in your families. And I've asked Pastor Steve, our pastor of children and young families, to make that a high priority in the coming year. And I'm going to support him and I'm going to join him in fulfilling that commitment. Second, we have to continue to faithfully teach God's Word in the pulpit, in our classrooms at LifePoint, and in our homes. Again, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
I hope that you know by now that you understand that my commitment to you as your pastor will always be to open God's word to you as faithfully as I know how. I consider this to be my highest priority. In churches across the country, and unfortunately in many parts of the world, pastors and church leaders are abandoning their faith in the inspiration, in the authority and power of the Bible. They're abandoning their confidence in the simple message of the gospel. And I want you to know I will never go there. My request of you is that when the time comes that you have to pry my bony fingers off the pulpit and lead me off stage left, when I'm no longer able to serve as your pastor, you will call to this pulpit a man who honors God's word in the same way. It all begins, I believe, right here. And I want to take a moment to speak to you who are teachers of children and youth here at LifePoint. Your primary calling is not to entertain kids or to merely provide child care. Your calling is to teach the Bible as the Word of God with clarity and without apology. So many Sunday school teachers and youth workers these days seem to think that their job is is simply to produce safe, happy, moral kids, and that's fine. But it falls far short of what God desires, which is maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Fun is my middle name, and I... And I think that coming to church ought to be an enjoyable experience for everyone, especially children. But parents, your first question of your children after Sunday school or after a youth meeting shouldn't be, did you have a good time? Your question ought to be, what did you learn? So that you can have a discussion with them about what they're learning from God's Word. You may be surprised. They may have something to teach you, too. Teachers, please don't waste the brief, precious time you have doing nothing more than entertaining, or listen to me, or moralizing. Pray that God will endow you with spiritual authority and power. Lead them into a growing personal faith in Christ, Even if you're working with the youngest children and you're just laying a foundation, lay a good one. Lay a solid one. Tell them the stories of the creative power and the faithful love of God and his miraculous acts in history. Introduce them to the real Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, who left the glory of heaven, who took on human flesh became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, who was raised from the dead by the power of God and who has been exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go ahead and tell them that they're great sinners, risk offending their self-esteem, But tell them also that Jesus is a greater Savior whose grace is greater than all of their sin. Tell them that God has a plan and a purpose for their lives and that the Spirit of God within them will work that out, will transform their character to make them more and more like Jesus Christ. Tell them that he's coming again to take them home, that this life is not all that there is, 
that they have a glorious eternal hope awaiting them in heaven. Model for them what it means to follow the Lord. Show them by your investment of time and resources and affection that you're not just filling a slot, but that you do what you do because you love them. Show them Jesus. Provide frequent opportunities for children to trust in Christ, to give their lives to him. Parents, here's God's call to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Well, that's an ancient command. But Moses is telling them to actively teach their children the word of God, to talk about it whenever they can, to take advantage of teachable moments, to create an environment in their homes that's conducive to spiritual nurture. Number three. We as a church must commit ourselves to be spiritual mentors to young people in our church. And whether you're a parent or a pastor or an elder or a Sunday school teacher, a youth ministry leader, or just part of this community of believers, God calls you to a commitment to godly influence in the lives of our young people. You see, they're watching. They're watching. You might say, well, I don't have any official title. They're still watching. I had to laugh a couple of years ago when little P.J. Andrew, who, son of a military couple who are no longer with us, little P.J. was walking by me at church, and he looked up at his mom and he said, Mom, is that God? And he looks pretty ancient. See how many how many young people today are being raised in single parent families? How many are being raised in families where one parent is a believer and the other is not? How many families, whether whether mom and dad are both in the home or not, how many families today need the help of a larger family? That includes believers of all ages who are learning together what it means to follow Jesus Christ. So you can't do it alone. You need the church. My son John, whom some of you taught in Sunday school when he was a little boy, is about to become a dad. And he called me one day and he said, Dad, what, what advice do you have for me? And I said, well, that'll take several more years. But I said, here's one. Make sure that you take your kid to church every Sunday. Make a commitment to the church. Make sure that your kids are being influenced by others who will help you raise him 
See, Timothy didn't have a Christian dad, but he had a spiritual father in Paul. He had spiritual aunts and uncles in the church and in Paul's missionary teams. And Paul didn't shrink back from the responsibility to be a father to Timothy to show him what godly masculinity looks like. And he said to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Let me add this. Call it wisdom from years of ministry with kids. If you are considering the thought of volunteering for ministry to teenagers, please don't think in terms of months. Please don't think only in terms of a year. Think in terms of years. And think in terms of time invested in lives, not merely in programs. And that's what it takes to be greatly influential in the life of a young man or a young woman. This is a weird time in history, isn't it? I mean, kids are starting school on their computers at home. And I think this year presents a unique opportunity for us as a church when kids are doing school online to be even more influential as a community that is uniquely committed to knowing and caring for our children. Do you know the names of the kids in our church? I don't know them all, but I'm committed to learning them, and I would invite you to that too. That when they come to church, you would greet them by name. Ask them how they're doing. Number four, we're going to have to extend invitations to our young people to engage in meaningful service that will be life-changing. I had a conversation recently with the mother of one of our young teens. I felt both encouraged and deeply challenged when she told me that her son doesn't want to be merely entertained in our youth group. He wants to serve. He wants to be involved in things that make a difference in the lives of others. And then I heard just a few days ago that our missionary to the African nation of Togo, Ashley Seiler, and, and the team that she works with have as the goal of their ministry to young people that each one, now listen to this, that each one will be equipped and ready to plant a church by their 18th birthday. <laughs> and I wondered... I didn't have to wonder, are we underestimating and underchallenging our young people? You think of all that Timothy saw and experienced and learned as he traveled with Paul and observed his ministry. Think of the educational and spiritual equipping he received because he was invited, even as a young man, to do risky things for the kingdom of God. And then think about what it takes to have a young person ready by their 18th birthday to assume responsibility to plant a church. In a speech to the NAACP in the year 2000, President George W. Bush spoke of the soft bigotry of low expectations. The soft bigotry of low expectations. And I've never forgotten that phrase. Of course, he was speaking in terms of race and racism. But I hope that we in this church will never be guilty of a 
soft bigotry of low expectations when it comes to our young people. Instead, I hope that we will call them by name to step up to roles of leadership, influence, and practical service that involve risk, that involve sacrifice, and that will accomplish great things in the name of Jesus. What will it require of us to raise up young men and women like Timothy here at LifePoint? What will it require of us to see those who are children today become the pastors and the missionaries and the church planters and the parachurch ministry workers and the countercultural influencers of the next generation for the sake of the kingdom of God? It will require at least this, that we equip parents to raise their children in the Lord, that we continue to put God's word at the center of our church and our homes in our individual lives, that we commit ourselves as a church family to be spiritual mentors in the lives of our children and our teens, and that we invite young people into roles of meaningful, life-changing service. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. Let's put a helmet on and get busy. Failure is not an option. We have a lot of work to do. Will you pray with me about that? Will you step up and help to make it happen? We are again in a rebuilding phase in our youth ministry. We need you. So let me hear from you. Let me hear from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the example of Timothy, for the model of Paul who became an investor in the life of a young man to participate with your Holy Spirit in helping Timothy become all that you saved him for and wanted him to be. Lord, may we not fail our children. They're growing up in a generation that's very different than the one most of us grew up in with very different challenges that are greater in so many ways. And they will have so many more reasons not to follow Jesus. But Lord, let us show them the reasons now while they're young. They would remember God in the days of their youth. And they would grow up to be world changers because they've put their faith in Christ. Their lives belong to him. And they're willing to go into risky places and do risky things for the sake of the gospel. Lord, help us. Please help us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.